Thank you. It is a pleasure indeed to be among you this morning. Um, <clears throat> there are so many directions I could go with this morning, uh, uh, but as you uh, already sort of have uh, illustrated for you in the book of Zephaniah, I'm going to be going into some fairly deep waters. Um, Zephaniah is um, my favorite book in the Bible. Uh, anybody else here? Zephaniah? Probably not. <laughs> Um, from the first section that was read, that, that long um, uh, litany of, of destruction and, and uh, abandonment by God, it is just horrendous. That actually represents two-thirds of the book or, or more. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a three-chapter book. Two and a half chapters are basically completely depressing. And so I guess you have to be uh, an Irish melancholy like me for that to be a favorite book. Uh, but it is. But the reason I love it is because once you've gone through those deep waters, there is riches at the end that are, are actually quite unique in Scripture in terms of how the Lord is presented to us. That is a great, great blessing to us. And so the first section that was read is really just representative. I won't be focusing on that. That's representative of most of the book and representative of the context I want to speak into. Absolute destruction. A society that has rejected the Lord. Cities that are abandoned. There is no one going through. Wild dogs run through. The tumbleweed down the street. That kind of visual imagery. Society utterly destroyed. And, and I didn't realize uh, originally that there was um, a modern-day parallel to this. Um, and that is the city of Phnom Penh, the capital city of Cambodia. In 1975, the Civil War ended, and the capital city was taken over by the Khmer Rouge. And um, uh, the city of 2.5 million people was emptied in 72 hours uh, of its occupants. And, uh, Thousands died just in that opening day of the revolution that would become known as the killing fields. And so the cities were emptied and lives were destroyed en masse. It is the only time in modern history when an entire country becomes a concentration camp. The borders are sealed. Everybody in that country is subjected to uh, violence in an absolutely brutal way. 100% uh, of the population became internally displaced people or internal refugees taken from their homes and forced out into the fields. Children were systematically separated from their parents. And, and the whole mantra was, we're going to eradicate all previous knowledge. And we're going to purify the people on harvesting rice and torment and starvation and torture. Uh, absolutely satanic in terms of, of what went on. Now, while that's happening, I am growing up in Belfast in Northern Ireland. I am a young teenager. I am a dyslexic kid. I am absolutely failing in school. Uh, I am a disaster academically. And I am subjected to a fair amount of, of violence growing up in Belfast, and that was familiar to, to me. Um, and to make a very long story short, uh, my dad was a pastor. Uh, he was called to a church in Canada. We emigrated to Canada, to Ottawa. And, um, and I um, ended up in the RCMP. And, uh, and I was a weapon specialist in the RCMP, a trained sniper and a weapon specialist, uh, which is kind of a genetic thing when you come from Belfast. It kind of just, uh, it's the way you're wired. It's, it's how I grew up. I was uh, surrounded by, by violence. Uh, and so that was a natural thing for me. Um, and my job in particular involved working with, with dead people. Um, my specialty is, is, is forensic science and, and, and getting dead people to speak. What can they say about what happened to them and analyzing crime scenes, etc. And, and so 
uh, I was absolutely sick of dead people. I was just done with, with uh, what was happening here in Vancouver. I was posted out to Vancouver to do this job. And, and I needed to go somewhere uh, bright, sunny, warm, and full of live people. And so I, I figured I'd take a vacation to, uh, to Southeast Asia, which I did. Uh, and I'm not much of a travel agent. Um, so I, um, uh, I ended up uh, on the Thai-Cambodian border, not knowing what I was doing, uh, in a hole, trying not to get killed as the shells whistled over right in the middle of a war zone. Um, so don't ask me to plan your vacations, uh, just saying. Um, and so it was, it was an astonishing thing to see and confront what was happening to those people. Uh, I had seen violence in Northern Ireland, but nothing like out on the Thai-Cambodian border. Nothing like the degree of fear uh, that the skeletal population that I was witnessing uh, were uh, expressing to me. And that was 1989, October 89, I'll never forget it. And so, um, so that vacation changed me because I had a desire to help. I found out that the borders were still sealed, no medicine was allowed into that country. The UN had sealed it, the Western governments had, had agreed to an embargo, and they were punishing that country in its torment. Uh, that's geopolitics I can't get into this morning, uh, but it was, it was horrendous. And so I decided uh, I wanted to help. And at that time, a little girl named Ratanak died, a little baby, because no medicine was allowed in the country for her, and so she was allowed to die. And that infuriated me. How could the death of an infant somehow be politicized? And it was. So. Um, I decided that uh, I wanted to smuggle some uh, medicine into Cambodia. Um, now, now, in terms of skill sets and mission work, I am, I am a disaster. Um, I, I, even World Vision. World Vision's massive. They've got jobs for everybody. Have you ever seen them advertising for a weapon specialist? Nah, probably not so much. I have the most useless skill set imaginable. And particularly working with dead people, I can tell you in 22 and a half years of RCMP work, I never had one client respond to the gospel. Not one. Not one. It's a dead end. And yet God would draw me into mission. Why, why on earth would he do that? I had no qualifications whatsoever. But I was passionate to try and help just a few. So if I could smuggle just a couple of suitcases through the UN embargo into Cambodia, with the right, uh, you can save hundreds of lives with the right meds, with just a couple of suitcases, if you can do it. So that was my big plan, God's plan, with absolutely no consultation with me whatsoever, was to give me nine tons of medication. So now I'm sitting in nine, with nine tons of medication in Vancouver. I have no idea how to buy a container, let alone ship a container, or smuggle a container of contraband through a UN embargo supported by the Canadian government, me with my security clearance from the RCMP. This is not a good career move. But it was that watershed experience. Is my loyalty to the oaths of allegiance to the Canadian government, to the commissioner of the RCMP, the queen, whatever, is that to trump what Christ is calling me to do? Where, where, does, that, where does that balance? Um, and it became very clear to me that I had to follow what the Lord um, wanted me to do. And so we did smuggle successfully nine tons of contraband through a UN embargo and get it into Cambodia and save thousands of lives. And there started Ratnak in, uh, International, which I never planned. And that later would grow into uh, building clinics, which became hospitals. 
when we started working in hospitals and the AIDS epidemic hit, uh, the adults were dying, the kids were left standing at the, the foot of the hospital bed, no social services, punt them out the back door, they're living on the streets, and so we became familiar with street kids and what was happening to orphaned children, and it was horrendous in a post-killing fields traumatized society, what can happen to children. And so you start hearing horrendous stories of abuse. And so I started to confront the issues of justice. This was new to me in a biblical context. We can all participate in missions. And I've had the privilege of cutting ribbons on clinics. And when you cut a ribbon on a new clinic, it doesn't matter who they are, everybody thinks you're wonderful, pat you on the back, isn't that special, isn't that wonderful. You can do so many forms of ministry and it's a positive, positive thing. But when you deal with issues of justice, or rather injustice, you very, very quickly confront lies and violence, and you have enemies instantly. It is nowhere near as comfortable. And I discovered very quickly that I, and the Western church that I had grown up in, had not prepared me. I was equally unqualified to deal with the issues of injustice before the Lord. We know Job one is to spread the gospel. We know that right from old uh, New Testament times. Uh, that's our job. We've got that. We also, in the Western world, thinking probably about 200, 250 years ago, we really started to understand the need for compassion, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, and to shelter those who are homeless. And there's numerous charities that do that successfully and wonderfully all around the world as an expression of God's character. But there's a, there's a third pillar to God's character, and that is justice. And that's nowhere near as easy. Because when you start impacting those, you can get shot. You can get beaten. You can be ostracized. You have enemies. You're infringing on a very evil, evil world. And so I wanted to do something for those that were being abused in Cambodia. Uh, particularly those children that were being sold. There was a horrendous industry of selling children to pedophiles. I'm not sure if there's kids here, so I'm going to use delicate terms, but you guys will be able to figure out what I'm referring to here. Let me characterize some of these young individuals. Prepubescent, many of them originally, young children, raised as product to be sold to the international trade by organized crime for abuse. Guys fly in, in the early days, they were flying in by the thousands into this vulnerable country that could no longer protect its own children to abuse such kids. What was I to do with such a mess? I felt completely overwhelmed. How could I deal with these shattered lives that were not only being abused in Cambodia, but in later years, the older ones were being sold internationally, particularly China. Because of one-child policy and gender preference for so many decades, China is 35 million females short now. That is a recipe for massive human trafficking and slave trade that goes on today as young vulnerable women from vulnerable countries are marketed in China. How were we to get such young lives back, tormented, abused, and thrown away? And so as I started to uh, engage with this, I encountered uh, the Old Testament in a whole new way. And verses that I was familiar with, and there's hundreds of them, but they weren't impactful until I started dealing with this. Let's, let's, let's deal with just a couple. Isaiah 117, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. Okay, I'll read that again. Learn to do right, exclamation mark. Seek justice, 
defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. There is nothing in that verse that indicates that's a gentle suggestion made to me. <laughs> it is a command. There are no options. There is no room to maneuver here. And, the, and Scripture is replete with this stuff of demands made of us in the issues of justice because that is God's character. Or another one from Isaiah, Isaiah 59, 15, and 16. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. Okay, so what was it displeased the Lord? The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. That's in keeping with his character, of course. But what was it that not only displeased him, but appalled him? What appalled him? He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. Those are frightening words for me because those are not words intended for the non-Christian community who don't know the Lord. Those are words intended for me. They are intended for us. No one of his people are intervening. The responsibility is absolutely huge. So armed with that, I went to uh, an older missionary in Cambodia. She had tons of experience. And I sat her down in a restaurant and I said, I have a problem. I want to engage in these issues of justice, but, but I feel completely unqualified. And you know the way when you're doing stuff for the Lord, you feel that pushback? There is that pushback where Satan is not happy. You're, you're on thin ice and you can feel it. You can feel that oppression. I wasn't feeling that. And I told her that. I said, I, it's the opposite. This is a country known as the killing fields. This is oppression on a massive industrial scale. And, and Satan's not oppressing me for wanting to engage in this. He's just laughing at me, saying, this is my turf. You're kidding, really? You want to impact this stuff? You're a joke. And I said, how do I, how do I deal with this when I feel I've got no skills on the one hand and Satan is saying, you're not even worthy for me to oppress on this. I'll just chuckle. It's overwhelming. And, and this missionary, I'll never forget her, she leaned across the table in this restaurant and, and she looked at me and she said, Brian, the, the reason you feel laughable is, is because you are. And I said, actually, Marie, I came here for some encouragement. Um, and she said, no, 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 don't, don't misunderstand me. She said, if you were trying to engage in this world as some kind of an Irish romantic that's going to go out and save the world, give up, go home now. But if this is a calling, if you are under the, under the banner of Christ, if he wants you to do this, move forward. Because Satan never, ever, ever laughs at Christ. He lives in fear of Christ. He cannot exist in Christ's presence because of the power of Christ's love and Christ's justice. So, the only question relevant to you here is not whether you do this or don't. The question is, who are you working for? Is it you or is it him? Powerful words indeed for me. And so, I continued my studies and we started projects for uh, young women and girls that had been destroyed in the abuse of sex trade run in Cambodia. And in this whole question, this whole issue, the question that comes up for me is, what does God need? Does he need theological training, medical training, training in social work, psychology, trauma specialization? Those are all useful things, but does he need them? If I'm any example, evidently not. What does God need? 
My submission to you is if you're sitting here today and know the Lord, if you are upright, you are conscious, and you have a pulse, you are qualified. Now, if you're going to go off and be a medical doctor in Africa, yeah, you need training. I'm, I'm, I'm not denying that. I'm not anti-education. But to be qualified to serve the Lord and serve the Lord in difficult places, he needs two things. He needs your heart and he needs your hands. That's it. There's really not a whole lot of excuses. Keeping in mind the demands made in Isaiah 1, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed. Scripture doesn't give us any wiggle room here. And so I marched into this horrendous world, which became the richest part of my life. Can we bring up the first picture? This is one of my favorite pictures, not because it's pleasant. This was to become one of my crime scenes. I ended up doing international investigations in Cambodia, involved in the rescue and rehabilitation of such children. The reason I love this picture is because of its power. The body language is profound, and I need to be uh, very cognizant of the fact that even as I speak to a group here, I realize some of us may have traumatic backgrounds. And, and I want you to know that by the end of this, there will be a clear sense of God's power over and above such abuse, that he is the God of freedom and even joy after this kind of stuff. And so with these kids in mind, I, I tried to figure out what my response was to be. And my response really when it boils down to it, is my desire to introduce to these children, horribly abused, considered product, that they would know who I call the Carpenter King. Because the Carpenter King is far more relatable to them than he is to us. He was born into very dubious circumstances as to who dad was. Born into poverty, became a refugee as a child in a foreign country, returned uh, to his home where he did hard labor, which is what carpentry was 2,000 years ago. And then in ministry, he tells us he has no place to lay his head. He was hunted. He was uh, uh, agitated. He was hounded. He was eventually arrested. He was beaten. He was shamed. He was abused. And he was killed. Do you think maybe these kids can relate? Child slaves can deal with this kind of stuff. Yeah, this is a God that, that they kind of go, I, I, I know that character. I know those experiences. And so if we introduce the carpenter king, we introduce them to the father they have never had on Father's Day. After having experienced horrendous abuse, often from fathers, we can introduce them to a whole new father, a citizenship, a home, love, a God that adores them and considers them to die for, my favorite expression. And so, with this history that Christ presents to us that is relatable to them, I'm going to read um, a portion of, of Zephaniah again. And, and don't look it up, because I want you to look at these kids and, and imagine these words in their ears with the circumstances they live. Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with, with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. Yes, even you. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Now, we all have this desire, this mental image that one day we're going to be in heaven, we're going to stand before the throne, the multitudes, and we're all going to be singing pitch perfect in that great choir, and we're going to sing the praises to the Lord, and it's going to be absolutely electrifying. 
Yeah, but that's not what's being discussed here. This, I believe, is the only time in Scripture we're told this. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And he will rejoice over you with singing. Who's doing the singing? He will rejoice over you with singing. Yes. Imagine these kids. These kids. One day, my desire, my longing for them is that they will crawl up on their heavenly father's lap and he sings for them. And that is exactly the same for us. We, no matter what is in our background, no matter how ruined we are, we have the privilege of climbing up on our heavenly father's lap and he will sing and rejoice over us. Like We cannot conceive of what that is like. What profound joy, and to bring that joy into this darkness is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Next picture. Do we have the next picture? There we go. These were the first seven children I encountered. These are stills from evidence videotapes. I won't get into it. I don't have to expand what those videos were, um, but you can imagine. This was earth-shattering for me. I had done 20 years of homicide. Nothing prepared me for these files. And these little Cambodian children were to absolutely change my life. They were absolutely lost in the most profound way. Destroyed in the most profound way. We were able to get five of those kids out. And we'll, we'll talk about them a little bit later. Because God can do dramatic things when it's impossible. And I had um, senior police officers in Vancouver telling me, this is impossible, what, you, what you're doing here. Uh, do you ever believe there's a God, Brian? <laughs> they didn't expect my answer. I said, well, actually, I'm functioning on that premise because I don't know what I'm doing. And they had no understanding of why we were able to do successful investigations and rescue such children and cope with the mess. And one police officer said to me, he said, you Christians are doing the heavy lifting, the stuff that scares the wits out of the rest of us. That is the best compliment you can possibly give me. Because that, I believe, is where we are supposed to live. Living that power of the Lord, absolutely not ours, but the power of the Lord to change that which is unchangeable. Next picture. So there's the children, and then there's the older trade, the much bigger trade, which is what we're really focusing on now with Ratnak. You can see her sign there, standing out in public, sleep with me, free breakfast. The, the epitome of objectification. This is in the Me Too world, not so much in Asia. And so this is a young woman that has no hopes of any normal life after this. She has been sold and is controlled. She is objectified. She might as well be a product in a gas station. And these are the broken individuals that, that Jesus says are not to be rejected. They are to die for. They are that precious. What an amazing, amazing thing that God would love them so much. And many of them are sold overseas. Next picture. Uh, this little one was sold to a foreign country as a slave. We got her back, and here she is presenting me uh, with some carved fruit. We trained her to do this. You know the fancy fruit you have in cruise ships and fancy restaurants? So she, this is a, a, a watermelon. She's cutting it now. It looks like a bowl of roses. It's beautiful work she does. And she has a good job of dignity, of beauty, completely restored. And... Um, we have the privilege of bringing some such young lives home from other countries, 
Uh, I'll, I'll unpack that uh, after lunch in terms of how that's done. It's a very complicated intergovernmental process, but we, we've figured out how to do it. Uh, and so these lives are brought home. And imagine this little one who was tortured. Imagine her listening to these words. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather those who have been scattered. I will give you praise and honor in every land where you were put to shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. I love my job. <laughs> what an amazing thing to be able to express that to these lives. It is absolutely profound. Next picture. So the whole process is difficult. It involves endless amounts of trauma counseling, uh, very significant clinical care and trauma counseling. Next picture. And job skills training so that these shattered young lives become young women, and we're working with men now. Young women and young men end up of young women and men of dignity with job skills and can move ahead knowing they are loved. Absolutely transformative knowing that they have the dignity that only the Lord can give them. Next picture. So when originally rescued, they have no hope. They live in profound shame. And the transformation that, that we see when they encounter Christ is remarkable. I have been approached uh, several times by directors of what was CETA, is now GAC, funny acronym. It's the Canadian Federal Government International Aid Agency. And the federal government have approached me on several occasions because the success of our programs in rehabilitating these lives that are absolutely destroyed is so well known now that they're coming to me and say, you're not getting federal government funding. Why aren't you getting funding? We want you to fund, or we want to fund you. Um, uh, why don't you apply for funding? Do you receive funding? All these questions. And I say, no, I, I don't receive any federal government funding and I don't want your money. Why don't you want our money? Everybody comes to us looking for money. You're not applying for money. You've been at this for 32 years. Why are you not asking for money? Because I work for the great physician. The great physician is the one that transforms this kind of shame into full life. And if I take your money as, a, as tax dollars, I, I will have to diminish the role of Christ in this, am I not correct? And every single government official is kind of, yeah, you're right, what a, what a shame. We love these programs. Can you just get rid of the Jesus part? Uh, sorry, no. It's absolutely central. Next picture. And so we see kids encountering young women, young men encountering a God that says you are to die for. And when you discover that you have a birth certificate that says your dad is God, you go from being worthless to being a princess like that. And that is true for us. No matter what has been done to you, no matter what others um, have inflicted on you, or no matter what you have done to others, God says you are to die for. You, you are just as precious. All those same rules that God gives us to present to these young lives are true for us. What an amazing thing it is that we are that precious to him. And he is capable of restoring even these lives. Chances are, chances are, if he can restore these lives, he can probably deal with the issues of your life. 
So often we come to the Lord and say, oh, I know you're God of grace, I know this, I know that, I know the other, but, 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 I, I'm just beyond the pale. And we have a sense of Jesus saying, yes, I died for the world, I died for you, I died for all the evil in life, uh, but, but I'm, I'm, your situation, sorry, one step too far, can't go there. That's never going to happen with Jesus. There is nothing in your life, nothing that you can bring to the table and shock Jesus, where he's kind of going, oh, haven't seen that before. No, he, he gets you. He gets the downside of your life, the darkness of your life. And in fact, as I have learned, he doesn't require my skills or my qualifications or my talents. He uses my weakness. He uses my brokenness. He uses my, my dependence on him because if I grasp that I have nothing to offer, he says, that's what I want. That's what I want. Because in your failure and your weakness, I will display my strength. So I would encourage you, even as these young shattered lives have learned to do, to give him your weakness and your shame and the garbage. That is the gold that only the great physician can absolutely transform, and he loves to do it. Next picture. So these seven, the first seven, when we first uh, got involved in this investigation, we, we didn't know who they were, we didn't, we didn't know what country they were in. <clears throat> it was absolutely remarkable how we, we were able to track them with God's help. Um, and um, they're wonderful young women now married, some of them not loving the Lord. And so we have this incredible darkness, overwhelming evil that Jesus can fix in these lives. These were not statistics. God made it very personal for me. That's what he does for us. It's very personal for him when he dies for us. It's not the world. It's you, 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 you. It's like it's all of us. But it's very singular. And we need to care about people in the same way. So we need to allow God to break our hearts. We, we sing praises to him. We want to be like you, Jesus. We want to we wanna follow in your footsteps. We want to hold your hand. We want to be your hands and feet. We, we sing all these things. We pray all these things. And yet, Scripture tells us very clearly that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Okay, let's step back. Pause. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do we want to be Christ-like? Do we want to be like him? It's going to get rough. <laughs> It's going to get rough. And yet in that horrendous stuff, there is riches as God redeems the garbage in our lives and the garbage in other lives. It is that if we offer it to him, he can transform. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so under the guidance of the great physician, next picture, we see redemption. So some of these kids in 2004, three. Next picture. I hope. Do we have a next picture? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Let me tell you what was in the picture. The picture is me sitting in a restaurant with three young women who are three of those in those four pictures who refer to me now as dad who know and love the Lord, who work with Christian agencies, who are out there living their lives absolutely transformed from the darkest of the dark to now being servants of the king. 
and I am privileged that they call me dad. It's the highest privilege I have in my life, these lives that are throwaway, that now refer to me as dad. Well, I shouldn't say now. They used to refer to me as dad, but it gets even better because in recent years, they don't call me dad anymore. They call me Brian. We are now equals. They are out changing lives too. We are partners. We are brothers and sisters. It is absolutely an amazing transformation that, again, I would submit to you, if God can do that with these lives, he can absolutely do it with ours. The call is still there. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. He will do the gathering. He will do the transforming. He will do the nurturing of those lives if we will only trust and follow the great physician and do as we're told. And then buckle up. It will get exciting. So I would encourage you to do just that and recognize that he can transform both us and them using our weakness and lack of qualifications. Blessings on you.